Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. Good afternoon. My name is Nick Remesong. Hi, I'm Pat Winiarski. I'm Alice Judge. Hi, I'm Faith Flaherty. Hello, it's Steve Sherlock. Hi, I'm Al Larkin. Hi, I'm Zenobia Carson. And I'm Peter Jay. Thank you all for joining us. Once again, we convene for the Senior Center Writers Group. And today, we are going to jump in, as we always do for every program, and hear what everyone has been working on during the past month. So tune up your ears and get ready for some fun. And Steve, who shall we start with? Has to be me, because I'm babysitting today. She's got a time schedule, so we'll always accommodate that, because as we've said, family first. That's right. (laughs) I'm writing um, a series of short stories that all together they are called Faith and Fido Fables because the protagonist is Faith, well, and the main protagonist is her cat named Fido, a rescue cat. This is the fourth in the series. Fido the Pool Shark. Oh, the inspiration for this is at the senior center, we are put in different rooms. We don't really have a home. So more often than not, we are in the pool room. And one day, Steve happened to say, I challenge everybody to write a story using pool terms. Billiard terms, as opposed to the yes, other pools. Because <laughs> there we are knew, other pools. <laughs> right. Which you will find out when you Google pool terms. So this is Fido the Pool Shock. The pool table was free. I could never have afforded a table like this one. It was constructed out of solid maple wood in a black satin finish. The pockets were genuine leather. The legs were intricately scrolled in a curving foot design. The ad said, free to a good home. I jumped at the chance. Borrowing my brother and his truck, we picked it up. What a beauty. The man even threw in four cues, a bridge stick, the pool balls, a vinyl pool table cover, in an eight-ball rack. My brother thought he had died and gone to heaven, but he lived in a small apartment, so we put the table in my basement. I always wanted to finish my basement. Now with this pool table, I have the incentive. But before inviting people over to play in my new rec room, I had time to practice. My partner was my rescue cat, Fido. He was hiding when the pool table was moved in through the bulkhead. Fido is quite the prude when he hears coarse language. He probably figured that with all that noise and cursing and trash talk, he had better make himself scarce. Fido is a smart kitty. But Fido quickly surveyed my new acquisition. It had a long, flat table for him to stretch out on. There were balls to swat back and forth. There was the possibility of a gathering of people to pet and scratch him when using the table. So there's that. On the whole, Fido approved. And when Fido heard the clack of the balls after my break shot, he came running and jumped up on the table to play. He pounced on the apex ball. Hmm, this isn't going to work, Faith thought. Do I have to lock you out of the room? Faith tried to work around Fido and tried a bank shot. But Fido was quick and chased the ball down the pocket. Meow! Ouch! That meow is an ouch, and Fido's paw was stuck. What's wrong? Faith felt around, and in the pocket, she gingerly worked Fido's paw out. 
Attached to the top claw was a ring. Yes, a metal round ring, like a wedding ring. This wasn't a toy. It was a nice piece of jewelry. I brought it closer to a lamp and looked at the inside. There were engraved initials and a date. This was a wedding ring. I immediately phoned the man who gave me the pool table. He laughed and laughed, and he told me this story. He loved to play pool, and it became a matter of contention between him and his wife. So much so that wifey said he might as well be married to a Q-stick, and she took off her wedding ring and placed it on the Q-stick. To retaliate, he picked up that very same stick and played a game of pool with it. He cleaned the table with it. When he finished, her ring was gone. She was so angry that she was gone too. He looked for the ring in all the pockets and all around the pool table, but he couldn't imagine where it went. Eventually, they were reconciled. But part of their agreement was that he had to get rid of the pool table. By the way, he asked, how can he reward Fido for finding the wife's wedding ring? Oh, no reward. Fido is happy that you and your wife reconciled and that the wedding ring will be reconciled soon. Fido loves happy endings. <laughs> mm-hmm. What a great story. Yeah. Hey, very nice. And the gauntlet has been thrown. Yes. <laughs> so, I, rumor has it, Bill, that you've got something that goes back into history, even with the studio and stuff. So, we'll cue you up for that one. My friend uh, Frank Falvey, who, who works for this station, too, Every so often he'd, he'd come up to me and say, oh, have, have you written something about Sheila yet? As I said, she used to do the uh, cables. So uh, this is my uh, poem about Sheila. Remembering Sheila Burke, a great lady with a heart of gold. I remember Sheila. My story will be told. When I wanted to talk across the street, I would go to talk to Sheila, a great lady that I know. Sheila's answering service, she ran from her home. She also played tapes for the local TV channel. There she would not roam. Cable TV people would come and go at a fast pace, but above all, a very happy place. Old TV shows she would know very well. Then the phone would sound out, ring, ring goes the bell. Sometimes at Christmas, I would decorate the tree. She loves all the decorations that all of us could see. One time I told her, on a can I did stomp. She replied, I'd have to run it over a few times. Funny lady, the best. I write this poem for Sheila. My memories go on. With the ring of the bell, my memories live on. Mm-hmm. Very nice. I'm not sure how good it was, but... <laughs> well done, Bill. I, t- I, tried to, I tried to put put some of my memories with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I hope I hope Frank likes it. <laughs> yes. Oh, he hasn't well, heard it yet. No. No. Oh, okay. Well, he'll have to listen and find yeah. out for sure. <laughs> Pat, you've got something. I do. It's called "My Grandmother's Hands." Robin read by Qtex. The ever-present bottle had a place of honor on my grandmother's bureau. In awe, I watched as she dabbed the bright red polish on any chips that her nails had sustained as she went about her daily tasks in the large house on Maynard Street. Her perfectly manicured nails did not impede the constant motion of her fingers as they sewed, 
crocheted, knitted, cooked, and baked. Not only were these hands busy, but they also were incredibly talented. A fourth bedroom, turned sewing room, was the magical place where pretty clothes for my favorite dolls were whipped up quickly on a foot pedal singing sewing machine. Happiness abounded as I viewed the finished products and dressed my dolls in their stylish new outfits. Dressmaking was an inherent art. As a young, unmarried woman, my grandmother opened her dressmaking shop in Norwich, Connecticut, circa 1915. Crocheting was her nightly pastime after a day of housekeeping chores. Fashioning doilies for parlor tables and the arms and backs of upholstered chairs, as well as bedspreads for both twin and double beds, kept her nimble fingers, which held a crochet hook always in silver, flying through the white or ecru thread. Today, I am still in possession of the intricately patterned fringed bedspreads. Now safely stored, these artful masterpieces invoke a sense of wonder in me. How did my grandmother's hands create such beautiful heirlooms? Delicious meals were produced in my grandmother's cozy kitchen. I loved to go to her house as a child to indulge in her sumptuous chicken pies, hearty beef stews, and creamy macaroni and cheese piled high with buttery breadcrumbs. Long after my childhood and well into my adulthood, I would race to her home for my favorite dishes. The warmth of her meals, always lovingly made, soothed both my body and my soul. And, not to be forgotten, were her baking skills. Masterful hands demonstrated great skill and a flair for the beautiful presentation of her consummate desserts. Light, airy cream puffs, decadent devil's food cake topped with buttercream frosting, sprinkled with fried coconut, and plump cherry wink cookies were pure delight. How I love to whip the cream, to scatter the coconut, and to crush the cornflakes that added the crunch to cherry winks. At the age of 82, my grandmother decided to learn a new craft. She was determined to teach herself cruel embroidery. Together, we would go to the craft store on Benefit Street, where she would choose a project. More than 40 years have passed since her first piece was completed, yet all are in perfect condition always reminding me of her extraordinary talents. I was truly amazed as she became proficient in this newfound skill, deftly embroidering the various colors of twisted worsted yarn into charming works of art. Framed and hung on the walls of my home, these pieces affectionately linked me to my grandmother's every day, knitting a skill she learned early in life inspired multicolored afghans to ward off the chill of winter. But the loveliest and most loving items she knitted 
were soft, warm, white and yellow blankets, cute booties and bibs, and toasty mittens for my sons. The knitted white blanket in which both were wrapped at their christenings has been passed down to my grandsons. On the day of each of their christenings, I placed the blanket on them and asked to take a picture. My grandsons now have in their possession a beautiful, soft, white blanket knitted by their great-great-grandmother. My wish is that this heirloom be passed down to my own grandchildren's children. Robin red nail polish may have embellished my grandmother's fingers, but it didn't tell the true story of the myriad creative projects her loving, graceful, talented hands accomplished. Nice. Very nice. Thank you. Lovely memory. Thank you. To pass on to your children and their children. Mm -hmm. So, Al, do you have something today? Okay, well, uh, yeah, I do have something. It's uh, This story is inspired by a fellow that uh, wrote a, a story that was uh, very hard on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and anyway, so I was inspired to write this uh, because uh, I was very fond of Jefferson and what he accomplished for our country and, uh, and whatever other contributions he had. Anyway, it's called, It's Awful to Kill a Dead Eagle. When my seven-year-old daughter, Carol, came through the door, she began, began to complain about her brothers and the other boys who were on the dirt road beside our house, throwing rocks at a small bird that was dead on the ground. When she was through expressing her frustration about this, she summed it up with, it's awful to kill a dead eagle. Must have been found it very disrespectful. Instead of an admonition, I should have brought a shovel out to the boys to give the bird a burial. The glory days of this creature was now over and should be well thought of, not unlike our own kind, who may deserve some respect as to the humanity where all are capable of good or evil, to err as human. I've only known one person who is too good to be true, and she's my sweet cousin Anna, but her husband or her children might tell you otherwise. I think of the good and look for that in everyone, somehow with positive thinking and judgment set aside. Honorable, just, pure, Lovely, those are the things I think of. Graciousness. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, I try to think of these things. Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book on the power of positive thinking, a way that can make a difference, and I can testify to that as an example of this when my wife Margaret lost the diamond ring from her ring. She traced her steps coming out the side door and then down the walk to the driveway. This same child, Carol, said, I'll find it. She started to comb through the grass along the walk with her fingers, and in less than five minutes, she exclaimed to our amazement, I found it. In Julius Caesar, we read in Mark Anthony's speech, I have come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. He knew they would have none of that. Yet he reminds them 
that there was some good which could be said by saying the evil that men do lives after them while the good is oft interred in their bones. Great leaders and people who make a difference are always measured by the good they may have been brought up, are not always measured by the good they may have brought about. Their flaws or sinful ways they may have lived is too often the focus too many times. It seems like we'd like to take them down a notch to make them more like us. We see this in gossip where people are maligned for some revelation, truth or not. What is spoken may be better left unsaid, though we should never be afraid of the truth. We do need models and heroes whose gifts inspire us to make the world a better place. Whether they have lived far of flawed lives or otherwise, without putting them on a pedestal where none belong. The history of the world is pretty much about great men and women who through their times and circumstances created events and outcomes because of their attributes or inspiration that led them to the benefit of many. And certain individuals in turn built on those actions or ideas becoming heroic as well. These are outstanding people shaped and prepared by society itself. Life is a work in progress for the gifted as well as the ordinary people where each experience helps prepare us for what's next. The difference in the greats is the actions they take to enhance society. Writing of King Solomon in scripture, the scribes have much to say about his attributes, wisdom and honors that benefited his people but they didn't forget to mention how he sullied his life and his marriage bed in his end days. To what purpose? I'm not sure, except the truth. This has been the case with many persons who are admired or out, for outstanding achievements or noble qualities, who also may be flawed in some ways. Heroes, they come and they go, as we are beneficiaries of their efforts and accomplishments. I can only be grateful for the differences that they have made to life, cutting them some slack instead of being a hack. After all, to forgive is divine. And should heroes or eagles sometimes fail or fall, they had their day and once did soar. I prefer to focus on the meaning from a line from an old song that I'd like you to join in with me is, you gotta accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the positive, don't mess with Mr. In Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In Between. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, again, that, very early on, you, uh, Al, you, you caused another uh, connection in my mind, was uh, uh, talking about thinking only on that is that is uh, beautiful and honorable and pure. Of, um, I mean, Paul's yeah. letter to the Philippians yes. uh, was uh, immediately came to mind. And, and, and then it was, mm -hmm. it's just, you worked it all the way throughout. It was very, I, I found yeah. it compelling. 
um, starting out with a small bird and building it to an eagle and then carrying that through. Also very compelling. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alice Judge, and uh, I'm going to read an essay of um, an incident that happened to me. It's called Water, Water Everywhere, But Not a Drop to Drink. We've all read The Ancient Mariner in school, so maybe you remember those words from the book. But when I moved into my condo 23 years ago and stayed for 18, I got acquainted with water on many scales, much more than I wanted to. I remember when I first moved into my condo, it seemed like every weekend there were these strange-looking objects outside the dumpster waiting to be picked up. I quickly figured out that they were called hot water heaters. Each of the 25 condo units had their own furnace and their own hot water heater. And if one flooded, say, on the third floor, it flooded the second floor unit and the first floor and the basement. Every hot water heater was in a closet. Mine was in my second bedroom closet. In all the years I lived in my condo, my hot water heater was a holdout. Every other unit had their floods before mine did. It always happened on the weekend, of course. Nobody appeared to understand that each hot water heater had a certain number of years before it blew. Most of the time, anyway. My friends did leak after several months. I had just put flooring in my two-bedroom unit when one morning I woke up and discovered water seeping out of the walls, ceiling, and new flooring of my second bedroom which served as my office. I contacted the trustees who lived on the premises. They knew who to call. The culprit for the water was a single father living above me on the third floor. He had just left for a month's vacation to visit family in his third world country of origin. Yes, in other words, he wasn't home. Something had to be done. The rate the water was flowing Something had to be done. The management company had some men that worked for them that were called for such a job as mine. One, an older guy, who I found out later, had hot meds in his pants pocket. He must have been athletic. He was older then, but he must have been athletic because he climbed up the rails of my porch that had been winterized but now has screens. He was climbing up my railings to get to the vacationing guy on the third floor who did not have an enclosed porch. So he was able to climb on that porch. Fortunately, the slider was not locked and the guy was able to get in the unit and shut off the water. He left a note to the vacationing condo owner as to what had happened. The water and time would dissipate. I would be busy the next week finding contractors to paint and lay more flooring. The next day was Sunday. I woke up, had my coffee, and went into what had been my flooded second bedroom. I was standing there when I realized new water 
was coming out of the walls and ceiling. How could that be? My vacationing third-floor neighbor had a cat. He asked one of his friends to come in, feed the cat. The friend didn't understand English. He thought while he was there, he would take a shower. And I turned the faulty water heater on. More chaos. That night, I thought I heard that same friend upstairs taking another shower. I ran up the stairs, pounded on the front door. The guy came to the door. He looked very nervous when I screamed at him, Are you taking another shower? The third-floor condo owner living above me was something else. I returned from work one night and realized I had some water dripping from my ceiling that was fast accumulating on my kitchen floor. One of the trustees happened to be in the corridor, and I grabbed her to show her my damage. She went up to this guy's unit and told him to stop his faulty dishwasher. Yes, he knew it was faulty, but his attitude, let's run it anyway. A guy from downstairs came up to help me with the water. In particular, a light in the middle of the kitchen that was full of water. He was trying to be helpful. Yes, I'll give him that, I guess. The light was full of water. He was very carefully trying to bring it down to dump it in the sink when, you guessed it, he spilled the water all over the floor. I had a load of towels that needed to be washed, so the third-floor guy, the guy who spilled the water, the trustee and I attempted to clean up the water. It was during this time I slipped on some water and fell down, hurting my shoulder as I sailed across the bathroom floor. I was amazed at how fast third-floor unit owner picked me up. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the trustee had made a speedy exit. Then there was a time my pipe burst in the wall on the third floor, and nobody had any water. It was Sunday, of course. The owner finally got a company to come and fix a leak. By the end of the evening, everyone had their water back, except me. (laughs) The owner felt so bad about my not having hot water, he came down to tell me his wife said I could come up and take a shower. I graciously declined. All these as these incidents kept occurring, and I knew I had to sell. I finally ca- called upon my house insurance to reimburse me on some of my water expenses. <laughs> After I knew my place had sold, I had installed a new water heater. The plumber said it was just in time. Once in my new apartment, ranting for the first time in years, I got a letter from my insurance agency. They had canceled my house insurance because they had to pay out some money to me. (laughs) But I had the last laugh, or chuckle anyway, because now I wasn't an owner. I was a renter. Right. (laughs) Murphy's Law was in play. Oh, my God.
goodness. Water, it strikes without warning. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and it's very powerful. Oh, my goodness. Oh. It finds oh, its yeah. way. Yep. So now you're just with us. Do you have something to share? Other than your reflections, et cetera, which is perfectly good, too. Um, I suppose I could just tell a little more about myself. Sure. If that's acceptable. Yeah. The most, uh, as I say, when I started at uh, Franklin TV with Pete, um, it was a time where I'd just been laid off from um, a job uh, with bank in banking. So I was between things and came here. And... It was also a time when my wife had been feeling some sort of uh, something missing in her life. And we'd talk about it, and she was at that time a member of a book club. Uh, and one of the women in the book club had at one time told the book club about her faith. She was a Christian. And my wife uh, asked if she would talk to her about that. She said, well, yes, I'll talk to you about it, but what you have to understand is when I talk about it, I'm going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And she eventually started going to the church that they went in Hopkinton. And she went, and I did not go. I was, at the age of 15, I had decided, and all with all the wisdom of a 15-year-old, a uh, 15-year-old Catholic, that there was no reason for me to be here. Uh, there had been some other things previously in my life that had kind of colored that decision. But, so, at this point, I'm 59, and my wife is saying, I'm going to this church. It's very nice. I enjoy it. I'm finding something there. So she said, you're welcome to come. You don't have to. You can come if you wish. If not, that's fine also. And I thought, well, I'm out of a job. This might be a good way to network. I said, you know, you don't really have to, you do much to fool people into thinking that you believe one thing when you believe another. So I thought, <laughs> these, are, these are people just, you know, full of whatever, and they're going to be easy to kind of, you know, get what I need from them. So she takes me to the first Sunday, uh, and we, she starts me out in the chapel, which is off to the side, so it's much smaller. So in case, uh, you know, there's, I'm not too immersed in anything. And we sit through it. It's very nice. It is. It's a chapel service, a very traditional England chapel service. They sing hymns. Uh, the one thing I did notice is there was a lot of electronics around. And I thought, well, that's, that's nice. You know, maybe I can use some of this. Because that's what I was looking for is who and what can I use for mm. my purpose. Mm -hmm. And... So I see she said, yeah, it was very nice. There was a young fellow got up, started talking. She says, she whispers to me, he's from Australia. I says, no, he's not from Australia. He's from South Africa. There's a difference. So she, you know, that was this fellow named Dorian. He was one of the pastors. And he says, and now we'll hear from our lead pastor. And a screen comes down. And there's a picture on the screen, and I can see there's guitars, there's drums, there's a piano. And I'm thinking, now this is where the fun's going to start. Because I'm looking for wicker baskets for, you know, to hold some snakes, maybe some <laughs> jars of clear liquid, a little, little something for later on, you know, a little arsenic to test your faith. And I thought, this could be fun. Well, this younger fellow comes out, and he's obviously not from uh, South Africa. He's from Rhode Island. 
and he's talking about us and yous, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a breeze. Uh, but he tells a message, and he, you know, it seemed very nice, so we leave, and my wife says, well, you want to go again? I says, yeah. She says, well, we can go into the worship center, and I said, well, what's that? And she said, that's the main part of the church. That's where, you know, you saw that video. And I said, oh, you mean the big room? We were in the lounge. We get to be in the big room now. Walk in that Sunday, and I didn't get past the first door before I was hit by something. There was something that hit me right away. I was upset. I was unnerved. I was—I uh, didn't really know what was happening to me. Um, so I go in for the service. It's very loud, the service. So I thought, well, I, I know what this is. It's, it's loud music. It's they, this is something they do. It's a trick. But it still, it, the feeling didn't leave me. And my wife kept kind of poking me and saying, are you all right? I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you're crying. I said, oh. So I was crying. So I walk out. They used to give us a program. I walk out, and I've got the program over my face, and so no one can see what's happening. And catacorner, because I know I'm not going to make it far from me, is the library that it had at the time. So I go in there, and basically... I collapse on the floor, and next thing I know, my wife is standing over me. She's found me, and wasn't that great a search, but she did find me, trying to tell me that everything's all right, and I said, nah, I don't know what this is. So at that point, I became, started to become more involved with the church. I went to the men's Friday breakfast, prayer breakfast, walked in there, made sure that, you know, I kept thinking I'm going to have to sit at the back because I'm going to have to leave here because this is gonna, not going to be for me. Well, those are all round tables. There was nothing at the back. <laughs> I didn't have any choice. <laughs> Fella comes across the room to me and puts out his hand. He says, you must be Nick. I said, well, obviously, I'm the only fresh face in here, so I guess so, yeah. So we, I go through the men's breakfast. And it's, it, was a com it was another unsettling moment. It was another unsettling time. And I didn't know what was going on with me. So they suggested, you know, you can come to this breakfast. Um, you can talk to somebody. We have some classes. I started doing that. And in, through the process of talking about this, I was pretty much told that what had happened was that had been, you know, I had been, I experienced the Holy Spirit, God, um, and that's what happened. And, and th there were people who said, you know, I envy you this. I said, not if you'd gone through it, you wouldn't. I said, it was physically painful. It was mentally and disturbing. He says, yeah, but that's what it is sometimes. I mean, and, and I said, well, I, I'm 59. I haven't had a faith since I was 15. He's, you know, and then I remembered a line from uh, Evelyn Waugh, Brideshead Revisited, where the old Lord is coming back uh, and he's dying and... At the last moment, he accepts the last rites from a priest whom he has had no time for in his, in his previous life. And they ask the priest about it, and he says, well, sometimes you can't have an agreement without an argument before. And then I realized, yeah, I'd been having an argument for whatever, 15 to 59, whatever number of years that is, and arguing with someone that I said didn't even exist. So... How do you argue with someone who don't, doesn't exist? Why do you bother? Well, that's why. So that basically is, was 
that was happening at the same time. And I would talk periodically to Pete mm-hmm. and others about it. And, you know, and it, no one seemed terribly unnerved. No one seemed to be feel like, you know, <laughs> we got to step away. This is not going to be good. So that's what I've been doing. So I became, I was baptized. Um, I was brought, became a member of the church. I serve on the Stephen Ministry, which is, as I mentioned earlier when I was introducing myself, is where we go through a good deal of training, and it's a lay ministry. I'm not I'm known as a Stephen minister, but it's a lay ministry, where we go alongside people who are in crisis, such as I had been, you know, and then I, mm-hmm. and you just listen. And I, they come after me a few times to do this over the course of two years, and I said, no, I, I really can't do that. And I said, and finally, one time he says, look, I can't give advice. And they said, well, that, you don't do that. We don't do, we don't give advice as a Stephen minister. You're there to listen. You're there to help. You're there to be someone who doesn't judge and will stay with them and, again, walk along beside them, be yoked with them. So that's kind of the latest big uh, experience I've had in my life. So that was, like I say, 2013, May of 2013, I believe it was. Yeah. Slain, slain by the spirit. Yeah, yes, yes, I was. <laughs> yes. And Great like testimony. Uh, yeah. Good testimony. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so I kind of write the same way I speak. So I don't know how, how good that's going to be. Um, I look forward to hearing that. I thought that uh, I would take a moment here, since we are a writer's group, uh, to share something with you. I sent it on to Steve earlier this week. Don't know if he sent it around, but um, the New Yorker wrote a fun piece Oh, that one, uh, yes. about second mentions. Uh, basically, uh, and I'll read a little bit, uh, some excerpts from the article. There's a Twitter account. In fact, it's called Second Mentions. If you want to explore it and find it on Twitter, uh, you might find it interesting as people make their contributions to this premise. But the second mentions are the ways that we describe people in a longer piece. Uh, The idea that it's bad to say the same thing twice has been around for a long time. Something in the nature of the human ear makes repetition sound strange or off in the writing. And so it it sounds like a mistake. Poets of antiquity, who were constantly reciting their heroes' names, made sure to have elaborate alternatives. The son of Peleus uh, for Achilles, for instance, or the man of pain for Odysseus. In English, this impulse was termed elegant variation. In 1906, by the legendary style guru, H.W. Fowler and his brother, F.G. Fowler, variation and how to achieve it has obsessed people across languages and cultures, and the thesaurus has been cashing in on this for centuries. Since 2013, the preeminent collector of variation has been a Twitter account run by a British couple called Second Mentions. The account tracks the ways that writers strive to express the same thing differently, with examples taken mostly from newspapers and magazines around the world. A second mention, also known as a second reference, is the account's name for these ways of avoiding repetition. Take, for example, Adele, who is frequently noted at first as the singer Adele, and then maybe the soul pop titan on second mention. Some greatest hits, 
the Times of London describing tea as the bitter brown infusion and the Guardian describing a fox who ran onto a soccer field as the four-legged interloper. And the New York Times described Grumpy Cat, the internet meme, as the sourpuss with the piercing look of contempt. And so that's how second mentions work. So I explored that a little bit. Uh, and by the way, uh, the, the keepers of this particular Twitter account remain anonymous because they actually work somewhere inside a major media outlet. Uh, and so they prefer to maintain a low profile tweeting from inside the house. Um, anyway, I sent out an email and uh, I shared a couple of quick examples. Uh, one being, for instance, Jack went slightly nuts for the moment. A young man's custom when it came to love at first sight. As it turns out, our hapless hero is a repeat offender. So I have three references to Jack. I established later on that he's a young man and later on that this happens to him often. Now, the other thing is, I think it's possible to do the same thing in reverse. That is, you can start with second and third mentions and build up to the identity. And the way that I would do that is, here's, here's how you would do it repeating, first off, the not good way. Mary stood before him, coy. Mary was young, aware. Mary knew how to read the moment. So one would simply start out with, she stood before him, coy. A lady, young, aware. Mary knew how to read the moment. So basically, I have a step-by-step -step revelation of who our second character might be. And so it's interesting to discuss how creative you can be with the use of second references in the way that you construct a storyline. And uh, something I'm going to try and keep in mind in my future writing. I like it. Zenobia, what have you got for us today? I have um, an excerpt from my very, very tentative memoir. <laughs> uh -huh. And um, you notice that I write a lot of things about my childhood and youth and all that stuff. So it's entitled, Our Day Will Come. So for the first 14 years of my life, I held out to the practice, practical ideas of my parents, establishing good manners nice morals, and good behavior. They were high on my list, but at 14 and a half or so, I became obsessed with wanting to be married. I also became sullen, disinterested in school, and for reasons I could not explain, emotionally and endlessly attached also to romance. My teachers sent home endless notes announcing my sudden tendency to disrupt anything in any class I didn't agree with. I already know that, I would say, aloud and smirk as I gathered my books to make yet another pilgrimage to the principal's office. I would sit in silent defiance until one of my parents arrived to take me home. I would slump in the back seat of our car, barely answering the inevitable, what is wrong with you? What has come over you? And I would give miserable mumbles of, I don't know, or I think that teacher just doesn't like me. The truth I didn't know was that my parents' divorce with this year-long drama had rendered me speechless, and most of my small rebellions were due to my secret wish for them to stop the madness 
and put our little four-piece family back together. So I could feel normal and safe again, but they stubbornly remained separated, building new relationships with new goals and new partners. So my rebellion became fresh and more bitter each day. And the singular string that held my fragile thoughts together was a determination to begin a new life of my own with a husband and family. And yes, at 14, <laughs> I became a slave to the idea of getting married and leaving home. My boyfriend, who I remember, whom I remembered was named Ricky, was a 16-year-old rebel who was tall and good looking, had already been tossed right out of our high school and into an alternative education system. So I thought of him as being brave and strong. And though he had no visible means of employment, I thought that would happen once we got married. Surely he would save me from my daily existence as a latchkey kid returning home each day to an empty apartment where I cared for my eight-year-old brother, warmed up supper and thought about the, the way life used to be. The empty chairs at the dining table where my parents used to sit were now filled with the ghost of their conversations. Mother's quiet laughter, daddy's terrible jokes, my brother's third grade stories and my adventures in high school had been replaced by a mother who held down a full-time job, attended college classes and talked endlessly about her new life and a dad who showed up every two weeks for his visitation, accompanied by his fresh and embarrassingly young new wife. My brother seemingly seemed to be oblivious to changes like this and spent his time on the floor with his never ending troops of green army men. After supper, he would lay on the floor while we watched something on our black and white TV, arranging and serving his army platoon with loud orders. I don't know when the notion of underage marriage hit my boyfriend and me, but we researched the marriage laws of many states and discovered that in Kentucky, we could get married at our current ages. Wowie kazowie. So it was finalized in our minds. Kentucky it was. Never mind that neither one of us ever had been to Kentucky or very far from Illinois. We would start a new life like pioneers and we would put down stakes and become a shining example for other teens who had memorized all the words to all the popular love songs like we did. Like Our Day Will Come by Ruby and the Romantics because no one could tell us we were too young to know that we were in love. And, <laughs> and somewhere between the loyalty of the Duke of Earl and the tragedy of why must I be a teenager in love, we would make our own rules, go our own way. They would be sorry. We never quite knew what they would be sorry for, but they would regret all of their adult intervention in our lives. So one weekend on a night when my mother was asleep, 
I tiptoed out of our apartment, dressed in my Jackie Kennedy pillbox hat, low-heeled pumps, carrying a small overnight bag I'd pre-packed for the occasion, and a purse with all my earnings from babysitting, which was about $30 and some change. On the other side of town, my boyfriend was doing the same. We would meet at Spliven's, a local hot dog joint, and make our way to the Greyhound Station in downtown Chicago. I ran, for no reason, at least six of the 10 blocks to Spliven's, then entered the hot, greasy restaurant where all eyes fell on my attire. Spliven's was a place where everyone else would be either picking up hot dogs and milkshakes or sitting in in the booths talking excitedly to each other, dressed in the casual attire of 1962. There I was, dressed in my church clothes, looking nervous and out of place. The jukebox was offering up the uh, tunes of the times as I slid in an empty booth to wait for the love of my life. A waitress came over, looked at me suspiciously, and asked to take my order. Ah, I realized too late that I could not just sit here without ordering something. I ordered a hot dog and a shake, carefully peeling a couple of dollars off my bankroll. When my Prince Charming entered, carrying his gem bag of belongings, I could see fear and uncertainty in his eyes. And I tried to mask my developing shaking by smiling and pretending to be brave. We sat in the booth way past curfew and soon the place was closing. Just as we were to make our escape, a pair of police officers stepped inside and asked our names. We told them and they looked at each other the way Jack Webb and his partner did on Dragnet. And as we bravely explained what our plans were, I fully expected him to say, just the facts, ma'am. But instead, they burst into laughter so loud and hauled us to the squad car. My mother had awakened and found my bed empty. This coupled with the suspicions of the owner of Splivens, who had also called the police, had led them straight to our location. After dropping my knight in shining, now shaking armor off to his astonished parents, the officers took me to my mother. My dad had been notified and was at our apartment looking frazzled. Kentucky, the officers kept asking, followed by gales of laughter. I sat on our piano bench, studying the floor, my face hot with shame and anger. They were laughing at our love. They were laughing at true love. How could they? This would not be the end of my running away. I would try several times over the next few years because no one had a clue as to how some children react to divorce or an interruption in their lives. No one had a clue of the feelings kids could neither accept or explain. Seen and not heard was the order of the day in those days and the business of grown-ups, <clears throat> no matter how it affected children, was not up for discussion. I can still see myself right this minute, a skinny brown girl in a pillbox hat, waiting and waiting and waiting 
for my world to change and my friends to come through the door. Wow. That's very nice. Oh, that's very, a lovely very, story. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. So is the hot dog good? <laughs> <laughs> what flavored milkshake? <laughs> I believe it was the chocolate milkshake. It oh. was my favorite in those days. Indeed. Did you I share love the those hot chocolate milkshakes. I still do. I've got a bit of an essay as opposed to some of my poetry, although I do have quote poetry, and you'll see that. So, From T.S. Eliot, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Obviously, we may all remember that from the wasteland. Why cruel and cruel came in as a pun? Because cruel was the embroidering you were doing, your mother was doing as well. So it was like, wait a minute. How could we have predicted that connection to happen today? Um, So it was interesting. I also found when I found this quote, Went digging, of course. You always find some links. You go somewhere, and there's there was an essay around why did T.S. Eliot actually say April is cruel, pairing it with winter, which would, on the face of it, because it is so cold, would seem to be crueler. The idea was that April is a bunch of contrasts. You've got the dark and the dead woods, the bare trees or barely budding trees versus the winter, it's all consistent. There's nothing there. (laughs) You don't have the contrast, which so much today is extreme. It's either black or white. You're on this side or you're on that side. You're for or against. There's nothing in the middle. How do we manage in the middle? And that's what I think we're all struggling with in a number of ways. We need moderation. We need that in-between. Coincidentally, today is also Denim Day. I did not know until I found it. (laughs) (laughs) So while I had thought to wear one of my other pants, I do have denim jeans on today. Um, It was also too too cool for shorts, so that wasn't a choice. (laughs) (laughs) But Denim Day and the importance of it is recognition in action towards reducing sexual violence, which is a significant problem. And I think it originated clearly, you know, as violence against women, but again, with the changing of the genders and the morphing of the genders, it's really sexual violence, however it occurs, which is still appropriate. So, and I mentioned earlier, I had spent the past couple of days on the Cape, visiting some corners of this natural world and also finding out how unnatural it was in some spots. And one of the more intriguing spots that I visited, and I do encourage writers amongst us to go, Edwin Gorey. Mm-hmm. If you know of him, writer, uh, masterpiece, theater, his intro with the fine drawings, he did that. He also did... Edwin Gorey's Dracula, which was a major hit on Broadway. His house and museum is in Yarmouth. Quaint little spot, easy to visit, Uh highly interesting. Um, He was a student 
of nonsense. And wait a minute, a student of nonsense. Yeah, what he did was just kind of put things out there and then try to make sense of them, which is what we all do in many ways. Sometimes mm-hmm. it be still we, we can't make sense of it, so it's nonsense. Yeah. But when we do make sense of it, we get an awakening. We, we find out that yeah. the argument we've been having with somebody doesn't exist. Why are we doing that, <laughs> right? It's interesting how that... So I'm continuing to be intrigued by uh, nonsense, and I'll be exploring that further. Um, from another writing piece, and I also apologize, as I was leaving coming here, I brought Pete's books so I make sure I could bring them back, but I forgot Edwin Gorey, amongst the things he did, he had a deck of cards. Simple cards, 20 cards in this particular deck, a sentence on each. And the idea is you shuffle the deck and read a card at a time, and it tells Mm. the story. That would be an interesting challenge for us to do someday. Yeah. Yeah. And on his deck, and I because I don't have it, I got up to go get it. And then, of course, things get distracted. Didn't get. He had calculated, I thought, something in the trillions of combinations. The Internet in all its wonders, and you saw me find, you know, the Bill Withers click very quickly. So there's a gigacalcular, and 20 to the 20th is only 68,928,000,000 different stories you can make from 20 sentences. Really? Who knew? (laughs) So we would write the 20 sentences and then put them together in the 20 combinations times 20 times 20 times 20. That would be a wonderful exercise. (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I'm kicking in. I'm kicking in my first sentence right now. Uh Since I'm remote, somebody can write it down. My sentence is, she had no idea that was even possible. <laughs> so well, this, I think we've covered a lot of ground, Steve. And yeah. I think at this point, we would invite others who wish to join us. If you'd like to know more about how you can participate here on the Senior Center Writers Group, you can contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. I'm Peter J. And for all the goodly members of our group. Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. Good afternoon. My name is Nick Remesong. Hi, I'm Pat Winiarski. I'm Alice Judge. Hi, I'm Faith Flaherty. Hello, it's Steve Sherlock. Hi, I'm Al Larkin. Hi, I'm Zenobia Carson. And I'm Peter J. Thank you all for joining us. Steve, I think we did it again. We have done it again. While we talked about April being a cruel month. This is an August group, so stick around. We have more stories to tell. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.